0: Welcome to New Books and Biography, I'm Oline Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Jessica Crispin about her book, The Dead Ladies Project, Exiles, Expats, and Ex-Countries. Hi Jessa, welcome to New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> I am a writer and the author of The Dead Ladies Project, and, which is about travel and art and the inability to keep still. And to prove that point, I'm many time zones away from my, from my home, I guess you could call it that.
0: Uh, so I wanted to start off with some rather technical questions, um, because it's really a, a genre-bending book in many respects, and it weaves together biographical writing and autobiographical writing, um, travel writing, all of which I think really illuminates the dynamic that exists between our lives and the lives that we read about. But I wonder, how did you juggle all of the parts of the story that you were telling?
1: I guess just one one bit at a time. I didn't really plan it out, Mm -hmm. I guess, is what I'm, I'm trying to say. I planned out the trip. And so finding the threads of the book was, I kind of wanted the format or the structure of the book to mimic what your brain is doing when you get to a new place that you don't understand. So there's this kind of grasping and skipping quality where you're making associations. You're kind of flipping between what's happening internally and what is happening externally. um, And you're trying to make sense of it. So I kind of just wanted it to feel like that experience of being dropped into a new place and you're, then you're like, okay, so now what do I do? (laughs) Um, how do I make sense of this? How do I find meaning in this? How do I even get like a cup of tea somewhere? You know? So, um, so also that aspect of, from the very mundane of, uh, you know, feeding yourself, to why I'm here on the planet at all? What am I doing? <laughs> um, I wanted all of that ground to be covered in a way that was uh, similar to what it was like for a year and a half to live out of a you know out of a suitcase and not have a sense of home. Mm-hmm.
0: So, did you go into that year and a half of traveling with the intention of writing a book at the end of it, or did that just sort of come along as you were doing it?
1: No, it was very intentional yeah. um, as far as um, you know, before I went, I made up a list of where I was going to go and which people I was going to write about. I don't know if I could have done it the other way. I just kind of wandered around and come across the story. You know, that would have felt chaotic, I think. So, yeah, I had to have a plan in order to give some kind of structure to the mess of travel. Mm-hmm.
0: So, were you writing as you traveled and, and reading the books of these people that you were writing about, or, or did that come after the fact as well?
1: Yeah, that was after. I tried to, but it just didn't work. Because you can't really write something as it's happening. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> like, there's just no... There's no you're going to get it wrong. You're mm-hmm. going to be stupid and shallow. And so you have to have some sort of reflection. But at the same time, if you're since I was doing this back-to-back, I couldn't be in, say, Yugoslavia writing about what it was like in Italy. Mm-hmm. Like, that didn't make any sense. Because um, you need to be you know, in the present tense as much as possible when you're traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, I waited until basically the whole time. And for the whole year and a half, I had put these, you know, late night panic attacks. of This is, this is going to be terrible. Because uh, then I, by the end of it, I only had three months or something to write it. Um, so that was that was a good time. I apologize to everyone I met in those three months of time. By the way, <laughs> I was just crazy. <laughs>
0: I think it's a real testament to the success of the book that I I did question how it was put together because it reads so seamlessly that you thought it was dazzling that you simultaneously managed to to retain that that disorientation of traveling while also weaving in the stories that you were covering. It fits so well that it almost did seem like you would be carrying this massive library with you um, (laughs) reading about all these people. And I knew that wasn't possible.
1: Well, I do carry an enormous amount of books. I mean, a stupid number of books with me. I'm... I'm in Istanbul right now, and I think I'm carrying 12 books. Why do I need, I don't need 12 books. Why do I need 12 books? They have books in Istanbul. (laughs) I could have just gotten some here. So, so yeah, so that's not smart.
0: (laughs) So the the book tracks your movements through various places, tying those to the stories of other people. Um, How did you settle upon this structure, weaving the stories of people and, and places into your story? When you set up your original itinerary, did you have the people already connected to the places that you were going, or did that also come later?
1: No, that was all. That was all done in advance. Okay. Um, I needed people that I was at least familiar with enough to know the basic structure of their life story, and a lot. And you know, many of them uh, surprised me when I actually started digging deeper um, into their lives. How much different they were than I thought they were, particularly someone like Maude Gunn, who I feel is written about weirdly her biographical story is so interesting and layered, but you get these really weird reactions to her because, you know, Yates fans hate her because, right, because she left him heartbroken. And so you get, like, a lot of anger from those people. You get a lot of people who are really discomfort with her, uh, uncomfortable with her um, black magic practice, which was a huge part of her life. And so people tend to dismiss it. And so I thought I knew the story. And then when I started pulling from more sources than just like a kind of standard biography, I was like, oh, (laughs) people have been writing about her in this kind of really flat shallow way for a really long time. Mm -hmm. So to kind of restore that to her, I thought was important. So I think you've got nine people. Is that right? Uh, Yes. And one mythological figure. Okay.
0: I know that each one of them is probably deserving of its own interview. But could you give us a quick rundown of a couple of them and the places that they led you to?
1: Um sure. Well everything had to start with William James because um because he's my he's my dad. Um he's my intellectual dad. I do feel like I have some father issues related with him. I'm not sure what they are, but I do feel like they, they exist. But uh he's just been like the philosopher that taught me the most, that, that kind of thinking my way through his thinking taught me how to think. <laughs> That's a really stupid way of putting it. But um and so he always had to be a part of it. Um which did mean that men had to be involved, but not everybody likes likes that part of it. But uh and starting with him because I had to start in Berlin, which is where I started. Um and we were both like having a really bad time in Berlin, mm-hmm. as you do. So uh, so that was the beginning, his nervous breakdown in Berlin, my nervous breakdown in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And so then from there, the other people I thought that had absolutely had to be in there were Mod Gunn, who we've talked about, uh, Margaret Anderson, who's also like this kind of, um, she was enormously important to the history of literature. She uh, edited and founded the literary magazine Little Review, which introduced the world to, to James Joyce, to uh, Elsa von Freintag, Laurenhoven, Hoven, uh, who's crazy and amazing. Uh, she published Ezra Pound. She published ev- everybody of the modernists who matters, minus Virginia Woolf, she published. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she had a fascinating life story, uh, moved to the south of France, um, and she's very, she's not well regarded. People aren't really interested in her. I don't understand why. Um, and I felt really deep kinship. <laughs> Who else did I write about? Um, Stravinsky in, in, in Switzerland, uh, Nora Barnacle and uh, Isabel Burton in uh, Trieste, and some other people I forget. <laughs> it
0: is it is quite a crowd. Yeah. <laughs> was there anyone or any place that anyone anyone that you thought about including or any place that you went to that ultimately didn't make the book or did everybody get in
1: uh, a couple of people didn't get in robert graves i'd been thinking about uh putting him in but in the end i just didn't want i didn't want to deal with robert graves mm-hmm. like i knew what robert graves was doing and i just decided i wasn't that interested uh he, he because I, I and maybe i'll t- i'll write about this in the future i wanted to write about how a man or men can worship women but not really see them as humans and i just didn't want to do it I <laughs> just didn't want to deal with it uh, it just felt like i'm just not gonna have a good time so i'm not gonna do it yeah um and then there were a couple places that I wanted to go, and I did go during the year and a half of travel, but that I didn't have a person, uh, so I didn't write about it. Mostly that was just Budapest, um, which I went to twice, actually, during the writing of the book. Mm-hmm. And Paris, I did not want to write about Paris, so I had to avoid the whole um, <laughs> expat scene there. Mm-hmm. So what was your research
0: process for the biographical parts, and, and also just for the travel?
1: Most of the most of the people that were in the book I had been reading about for a very long time. So William James, I think I've read maybe five biographies of, and not so much in the lead-up for the book just over my lifetime. Same with Stravinsky. I find him very fascinating. Uh, same with Margaret Anderson. I've been reading her memoirs um, for years and years. So it wasn't as... I mean, some of them, like Maude Gunn, I had to do a lot more reading in the lead-up. More Nora Barnacle, I had to do a lot more reading. But, but so a lot of it was just like people that I'd been interested in and thinking about for a long time, but hadn't really had the outlet to write about. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of the first time uh, that that research got to be put into use. Do you have a favorite biography? Of William James or? or of anybody? Lead? Well, this isn't a biography. I find biographies suspect. Yeah. So I, so I always, I never trust them. hmm And I never believed them. Um, So I always have to read more than one because, you know, people are going to, they're just, whatever, biographies are a problem. But uh, I love Margaret Anderson's memoirs Mm -hmm. so much. They are insane. They make almost no sense. And they're full of lies. And they're the most beautiful things that I've ever read. And in one, she just, like, Mm -hmm. inks And this is before mixtapes, but she essentially just makes a mixtape, lists out, like, her favorite recordings, uh, just in the middle of some other, you know, thing that she was doing. And so I made, like, a Spotify playlist, and I listened to it a lot when I was uh, in her area. So I just thought, what an amazing, strange thing to do in the middle of your memoir, and just be like, here are my favorite songs.
0: And so I do think one of the great pleasures of reading biographical and autobiographical writing is the way that we as readers actively use the stories of other people's lives to navigate our own, but also to push back against what mainstream society and culture tells us to expect. And I think this is a circumstance for which the Dead Ladies Project makes really compelling evidence, because you mentioned the need to modify the the stories that are holding sway. Uh, Can you talk a bit about this and about how life writing in particular aids in this?
1: I wanted to be very... Bald about my biases um, because I feel. Like- like so much life writing is people pretending like they're the expert on somebody's life, right? They've done the digging, they've figured some things out, now they're going to tell you what this person was all about. And so and they're in total denial that they have biases, that they like some figures in a person's life and don't like other figures. That they disapprove of certain things that the person did and so that influences the way you tell that person's life story. And uh, I just wanted to be upfront about the fact that that that's what I was doing, (laughs) that I have biases, that I dislike things and, uh, like some other things so that nobody thinks that my version of events is the definitive version of events because you can read, you know, I'm especially someone like W. Somerset mom who had such a weird end of his life. You know, he was being scammed by these young men. Uh, he disowned his uh, family and uh, wrote this really bizarre book, and you really see people's biases come out when they uh, write about that it, that part of his life. And I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to pretend like I know everything. <laughs> you mentioned getting some pushback for including men. Uh, oh well, you know somebody's always going to be upset about something. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I found it completely bizarre and baffling, but you know, women, I don't, why would you include men? It's like, well, they're, they're around. <laughs> you encounter them from time to time. You can't just pretend they don't exist. Is my, is my feeling.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know that genres are always particularly helpful, um, but how would you classify what you've written? I, I think I keep referring to it as a hybrid of with autobiographical and biographical writing. And um, do you have, is there, how would you, how do you describe it?
1: I don't know. And it's, it's funny. I I do like to see where people put it in, where they classify it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you go to the bookstore, is it going to be in travel? Is it going to be in memoir? What's, what's it going to do for that person? And so I, I just like to think of it as the stupid book I wrote. <laughs> and I don't like to... <laughs> think of it beyond that Mm -hmm. as trying to figure out what it was that I did so I I don't have a I don't have a favorite uh classification people can kind of just they can just sort of do with whatever they want to do I mean I guess I I I would like it to be travel writing because when I I go to travel writing I always want more than what I get, or not mm-hmm. always, but most of the time I want more than what I'm getting from travel writing. I find a lot of travel writing is in, is, is blind to the political situation of a country, is blind to racism and, and sexism and religious bias and, you know, people's own, uh, inherent biases when they, uh, come to a new place. And I also, I don't know, like want more historical context. And so much travel writing is just about the surface. It's just, it's very, it's very much, it's sort of shallow, a lot of it. And so I guess I want it to be maybe... I don't necessarily want the book to be travel writing, but I want it to I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say. I want more travel writing to be like me, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah,
0: which I think is perfectly reasonable because I, I mentioned this to you before that I was so struck when you talk about going to Russia and and needing a visa and how that's never mentioned. Um, I don't I don't know that there are lots of types of this book, but that's you just see people sort of gallivanting around and it's never the immigration issues are never addressed and i thought that was such a fascinating detail to include the nitty-gritty that that when you're traveling that's such an important thing um but when you're reading about people who are traveling it's very rarely included
1: i know isn't it that's very strange now that i'm thinking about it i think i've only read about it in uh, graham green i Mm -hmm. think is the only person i've ever read mention a visa situation but yeah no i mean it's a if you're a traveler that is so much of your life <laughs> It is. it's huge <laughs> sitting in somebody's terrible office like and listening to terrible like 80s music on the fm radio while someone you know glares at you mm-hmm. or and your passport um i spent so much time in the german you know Ausländerbehörde trying to convince them to give me visas that now, now I want to talk about it, even though it's incredibly boring. See, I think it's fascinating. <laughs> Should
0: be talked about more?
1: Well, everyone, everyone in England is going to be spending a lot more time doing yes. that exact behavior. So. Yes, they are, so
0: indeed. It'll show up more in travel writing. It probably will. <laughs> You've ushered in the age of visa writing. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Um, I like how you also talk about traveling as a woman, but not as in, this is my narrative of traveling as a woman. It feels not like the front and center thing. It's more incidental, but when it, when you bring it up, it's so interesting because you also, I feel like very get, you very rarely get narratives that have that
1: where it's not defining
0: the entire experience. And um, so I thought that was really, really good.
1: Yeah. I don't, I get, I've gotten this question a couple of times, you know, how do you feel traveling as a woman? I was like, I don't, I don't know because I haven't traveled as a man, I guess. Right. But also, I guess the underlying question there is about safety. Like, do I feel safe traveling as a woman? And I feel like that's not an interesting story to talk about, whether or not you feel safe traveling as a woman. So I guess when it came up, it was, all, it was mostly about, you know, body. <laughs> Being a female body in the sense of like, oh, God, I'm out of tampons. <laughs> right. And I don't know what the Greek word for tampon is. What am I going to do? Um, so, yeah, it, you know, it's not something I feel like that's a, uh, a popular subgenre now in travel writing is traveling as a woman and thinking about traveling as a woman and, and filtering all of your experiences through being a woman. But I don't find that that interesting. Yeah, I honest. find it extremely limiting. <laughs> Yes. Yeah.
0: It's, like um, it's the only way we can talk about traveling is talking about how, how unsafe we feel, and
1: um, yeah, or just how empowering it is, yeah. or yeah. There's the they're very set narratives when you are writing that particular story of traveling as a woman that you're allowed, mm-hmm. and it either has to be scary or empowering, probably both. Um, I I just don't find that narrative uh, interesting in any way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's so interesting about
0: this book is it really, you offer kind of like a, this is going to be a horrible metaphor, but like a buffet of narratives. Honestly, <laughs> so you <could> Smorgasbord. <laughs> I know, a smorgasbord. You could read it through all sorts of different lenses, but you're not confining it to any one of those. And so it becomes, you, you emerge as a full human being, which very, very rarely, I think, happens in books about women. And the people that you're talking about do as well, which is which is just amazing.
1: Well, I feel, I feel very lucky that I... Uh, with my editor, um, who did not in any way try to strong arm the narrative, and there were, um, uh, you know, in the in the process of trying to sell the book, there were editors who like this is this is a mess. Can you you know pick one story and tell that? So, no, I don't want to. Um, but the implication was always. You know, you can either do a memoir Mm -hmm. and write the kind of woman travel writer thing, or you can write something historical and you can't do both. Mm -hmm. Um, And my editor was like, do whatever you fucking want. I don't care. Um, And she's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I had a good time with her. She was was a delight. But it really does take an inventive thinker at a publisher, especially these days, Mm -hmm. to... To think, oh, we can make this work, you know, um, because some publishers have become, have become very conservative as far as what stories they want you to tell. Mm-hmm. So, when you sold it, did you
0: ha- had you written the manuscript already, or was it did you sell the idea and then write it?
1: Yeah, I sold it as a proposal, and then I was about halfway through the travel when it when it sold. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's how it works. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I had the Berlin chapter done and that's, that's what we sent around. Yeah. And it's very, it's very dehumanizing. <laughs> it's a very dehumanizing process.
0: Yeah. I think that's why it's important to talk about it.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was, it was pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. it just, uh, yeah. I don't know what else
0: to say about that. Yeah. So when you, okay, so did you, so you wrote it in three months after you were done traveling. Is that right?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: So did you take notes as you were traveling? Or did you have like oh, a, pile, yeah. a pile of post-it notes with little thoughts and things?
1: Yeah, I had this one. I had this notebook, which I had been traveling with, and then I tried to abandon that notebook. <laughs> the thing is, like I, I believe this—the year and a half that I spent living out of a suitcase—really taught me the power of not not carrying things on your body anymore so that when you're done with something just leave it where where it is. So now I abandon books all the time. If this, wherever I finish reading a book, that's where the book lives forever and ever. I don't care. And right, so I finished this notebook and then uh, transcribed it into my computer and then tried to abandon the notebook in a hotel room in Greece. But then the next the next guest found it did not have it's not in my name in it by the way she somehow knew that it was mine based on she like followed me on Twitter <laughs> and she emailed me and she's like do you want your notebook back I was like, burn it <laughs> I don't want it Burn it please so probably if I ever get famous that's going on eBay I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> probably
0: oh, that's amazing
1: it was so it was so bizarre
0: so just how did you function out of a suitcase for a year and a half?
1: Um, it's easier than you would think. Yeah. Basically, just because when you only have a few things, those are the things that you figure out that you have. <laughs> and so you don't kind of um, look for anything else. Mm-hmm. So you wear the same dress over and over and over again, and you hate that dress. But at the same time, it's the dress you have, so you wear the dress. Mm-hmm. So there's, it can instill like, uh, a lot of frustration and longing, I used to like go at night, close my eyes, and go through my head of all the items of clothing I had in storage, <laughs> of, and pictured wearing them, and just putting them on my body, and then putting something and then it was so it was like sex fantasies, like a paper doll. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was so satisfying to do that. But then you get up and you're awake and you're alive and you have two dresses and you put on one of them and you grumble about it and you go about your day. So yeah, so I would switch out for the seasons for summer and winter, but otherwise, uh, I would because I would yeah just go back to Berlin to my little storage unit, add a box that was the alternate season, and then just sort of <laughs> fill up my suitcase uh, with the, the other season and just be on my way. Mm-hmm. Has it changed the
0: way you pack to go away for the weekend?
1: <laughs> oh, I am. I am. I'm incredible, and people, you know, they are. Like, is that is that what you brought? I like, yeah. Like this is what I brought. This is my first. I have a pair of underwear and a toothbrush in here. Let's go. Um, and they're like, oh my god, you're so amazing. I was like, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if I'm going away for the weekend, do you just need to change your underwear. You're like you can wear a dress a couple of days in a row without. Mm-hmm. It's as long as you don't spell paint on yourself. You're fine. <laughs>
0: And, of course, you did the thing that we all do when we go to foreign countries, where you communicate with all of the friends of friends who live there.
1: Yes. 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 Which I'm doing right now in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. So all friends of friends in Istanbul I'm currently in contact with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Did you have a favorite place that you went? Oh, sure. I mean, they were all my favorite, mm-hmm. except for the south of France. Fuck the south of France. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I would, love, I would love to go back to a lot of those places Particularly uh, Trieste and St. Petersburg mm-hmm. um, and and Sarajevo. I would love to go back to. So they're they're all distinct and they're all very. The experiences were very different. My affection for them is very different. And the way that I just sort of existed for the month that I was in that city was very different. So it's hard to say. Oh yeah, that one's that one was my favorite. Mm-hmm. It's all very it's like what kind of you know uh lifestyle or life experience is your favorite. Um but I would I would love to go back to Trieste. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe that's the one I would love to go back to the most. I have to say I love the section
0: on Jean Reese at the end. Um when you, you really don't like her. <laughs>
1: I really don't. You really don't. <laughs> yeah, but it's
0: such an interesting sort of chronicle of the way the way someone's life doesn't align with their work and and the disillusionment that you the biographical disillusionment that you can feel upon reading about someone.
1: I feel like it's okay to not like people. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, it's kind of inevitable. <laughs> and it it was weirdly controversial that chapter mm. in reviews and in feedback that I got where I was kind of accused of um, internalized misogyny and and of not being a good feminist because I didn't like this woman. I was like, she wouldn't be on your side either. <laughs> just, <laughs> just to be clear, she doesn't like you either. But I feel like it's okay. I feel like it's okay to not, to not like a, a woman as a woman. It doesn't make you a bad feminist. It just mm-hmm. makes you a human being. But also just, I think it's important to have... A position to take a position uh, and say, you know this is unacceptable to me mm-hmm. and so to me it's there were certain patterns of behavior in her life that I find unacceptable, morally morally unacceptable um, and I think it's okay to, to say that, but not everybody liked it.
0: I thought it was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Um, So one of the other themes that emerged for me, because it's something I've been thinking about recently and an idea around which more literature has emerged, particularly in the last year, um, is the idea of Spencerhood, which you mentioned sort of several times it pops up just occasionally. Uh, And I wondered if you could talk about that more and particularly the idea of how does one forge an interesting life? Or, or the life that one wants when it's so seldom presented as a viable option or even a possibility, um, which is, to me, is is one of the things that the Dead Ladies Project seems to be exploring, this idea of stories and the lack thereof.
1: Yeah, so spinsterhood. Well, I think just on, like, a basic level of definition, I'm, I'm a woman in her late 30s who's never been married, so technically I am, you know, a, a spinster. Um, but I don't feel like... I don't feel like that role is in our culture, or I guess it's it's kind of re-emerging, but sort of pre-second wave feminism. If you look at movies from the 50s and before, you see this figure in books and in movies where it is the unmarried, wise aunt figure who doesn't have a man but knows everything and is kind of separate from that, uh, that romantic culture and so can understand what everybody is doing, right? Like she, she's the one who can kind of guide the young woman through the process of dating or whatever, because she understands what everybody's motives are, because she's not involved in them emotionally, and it's like the auntie mame figure of this kind of because she's not married, she doesn't have to follow any rules. And in literature, like you see this role in like W. Somerset mom novels, Henry James novels, you know these um, gay men who loved these women, um, who really treasured these women, and thought you know they gave you know mom gave the spinster all the best lines. All the most fun. She traveled the world. She had control of her finances. Uh, she made out with sailors. Like She did, she did what, whatever she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, weirdly, that role disappeared from literature and from film. Now you're supposed to fall in love. Now you're supposed to be redeemed romantically. And if that hasn't happened in your life, then you can really wonder what the fuck is wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Am I worthless because I'm not? Because no one, am I unlovable because nobody loves me?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I wanted to, you know, what happened to that woman? And there was this great essay by Freya Stark, um, who I could never find a place for in the book, but I'd love to write about her uh, sometime in the future. She's a crazy travel writer. Uh, she was a spy during World War II. She's amazing. But she wrote this amazing essay about what happened to all the spinsters and it was that, that, you know, kind of older, the older daughter who was kind of fat or ugly, who was taken out of the romantic situation and through that got her independence. Mm-hmm. Like it was the removal of the possibility of love that gave her her freedom. And I thought that was really interesting. And I've been trying to think about that and write about that And I just don't understand, yeah, I guess I just don't understand why we decided we didn't need spinsters anymore, Mm -hmm. because we obviously do. We obviously need spinsters.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating subject. Please write more on it.
1: I would love to. (laughs) (laughs) In that
0: vein, what are you working on next?
1: I am, at the moment, about two days away from turning in my third book. Oh, wow. Uh, So I'm, so (laughs) my... I'm also in that phase that it was when I was writing the Dead Ladies Project. Of, I apologize to the people of Istanbul for <laughs> having to deal with me. Yeah, it, uh, it's a it's a manifesto, a feminist manifesto for uh, Melville House called uh, Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. Oh, wow. So, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure everyone will respond reasonably and calmly. Of course, they always do. <laughs>
0: You've been listening to an interview with Jessica Crispin about her new book, The Dead Ladies Project. I'm Olaine Eaton, this is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.